All right. That was amazing. No pressure there. <laughs> Hope I can keep the momentum going. <laughs> All right. One of the most important and consistent themes throughout all of history has been the struggle for freedom, whether it's freedom from political oppression, freedom from slavery, freedom of religion, or freedom of speech. There will always be a battle for freedom. We live in an amazing country, an imperfect country, yes, but in America we enjoy privileges and opportunities by God's grace that are unprecedented in human history. We have many veterans here at New Life Church, and many of our families have ancestors who served in the armed forces. And one of the most moving things we do every year is on Veterans Day is we honor the New Lifers who've served in one of our armed forces up front here. It's a powerful way as a church family to demonstrate our gratitude for their service and for their sacrifice. If you've been here on one of those days, you know just how powerful that is. As I prepare for this message, I was researching some of our military history, and I came across a a fascinating discovery that I've only heard of in passing over the years. The Buffalo Soldiers were established by Congress as the first peacetime all-black regiments in the regular U.S. Army. They were members of the 9th and 10th Cavalry uh, of the U.S. Army, and they were formed in 1866 with many of the original recruits actually coming from Kentucky. Uh, The nickname was given to the Black Cavalry by Native American tribes who fought in the Indian Wars. According to popular lore, Native Americans coined the term buffalo soldiers because the soldiers fought like fierce great buffaloes from the American plains. Now, regardless of the origin, the African American soldiers embraced the name by World War I when the 92nd Infantry Division embraced the buffalo as a symbol for its unit patch. The Buffalo Soldiers have a long and history, long and storied history. They fought in several military campaigns, including the Indian Wars, the Spanish-American War, World Wars I and II, and through our, even our most recent military conflicts. We've heard it many times over the years said that freedom isn't free. Specific wars and the reasons that they've been fought can and should be debated, but sometimes... War is necessary to stop the tyranny of evil and to set the captives free. Now, here's a picture depicting the phrase, freedom is not free, uh, which is engraved at the Korean War Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. We don't have to glorify the war, but we can and should honor the soldiers who sacrificed. Now, it's important, though, as followers of Jesus Christ, that we recognize daily the reality that we are in a war. It's not a war, though, with cannons and guns and bombs, but a spiritual war. See, it's a a cosmic war with the eternal souls of human beings hanging in the balance. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As we open the scriptures today, I want to talk to you today about true freedom, about perfect freedom. My big idea for the message today is perfect freedom comes from a perfect sacrifice. If you grab your Bibles, my text today will be out of the book of Hebrews in chapter 2. But as always, before we dive into the text, we need to lay some groundwork by looking at the context. 
Hebrews is written in the unique form of what's called a sermonic letter, uh, meaning that there are indications that this uh, letter may have originally been delivered as a sermon and later adapted to the letter style of writing. Scholars have not settled on the exact destination of the book of Hebrews, uh, but there's strong evidence that it was addressed to a group of house churches in or around the city of Rome. Now, the purpose of the letter is a word of exhortation and a word of encouragement. The context suggests that the believers here were facing both ostracism by traditional Jews as well as persecution from the Romans. And one of the major themes of the book of of Hebrews is to build a persuasive argument for the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The cluster of words better, more, or greater than appear a combined total of 25 times in the book of Hebrews. Jesus Christ is described as greater than any angel. He's described as greater than Moses. He's described as greater than any priest or old covenant ritual. Now, chapter 2 begins with a warning not to neglect this superior gospel. And then it moves on to a detailed and intimate description of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I in the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. There are three aspects of freedom that Jesus won for us that I want to explore today. The first is we're free to belong. One of the ways we've been created in the image of God is that we were created for relationship. We reflect the relational nature of the Trinity, where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have existed in perfect relationship forever. See, as human beings, we have an innate desire to be known and to belong. The Foundling Hospital in London was established in 1739 by the philanthropist Thomas Coram to care for babies who were at risk of abandonment. From 1741, when the first babies were admitted, to 1954, when the last child was placed into foster care, the Foundling Hospital cared for and educated close to 25,000 children. The Foundling Museum opened in 2004 to carry on the legacy and to tell their story for future generations. There's an amazing exhibit there right now called Superman Was a Foundling, and it lists many of the fictional stars of popular and classic culture who were fostered, adopted, or orphaned. And here's a sample of some beloved characters from the exhibit. Anne Shirley from Anne of Green Gables was adopted. Jean Valjean from Les Miserables was orphaned. Estella Havisham was adopted. Oliver Twist was orphaned. 
Spider-Man was adopted. Luke Skywalker was adopted. Tom Sawyer was orphaned. And all these characters had in common a sense of dislocation, of not really fitting in, not belonging. For Christians that were caught between the realities of Jewish religious culture and Roman secular government and not feeling like they fit in, these verses in Hebrews had to be very encouraging. And it's also an encouraging word today for those who feel like they don't belong. Hebrews 2 verse 10, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I in the children God has given me. Now, this passage in verses 10 through 13 is bursting with relational language. Verse 10 has a reference of bringing many sons to glory, and sons can be properly understood as including sons and daughters. Verse 11 and 12 have the words family and brother, and verse 13 has the word children. Now, the author then goes on to explain that it's Jesus himself who's the author, the pioneer of our salvation, and that because of his sacrificial death, we have become holy. In other words, we've been set apart, and now we're in the same family. The text says here that he was made perfect, through suffering. And we need to clarify here, the word perfect is actually the word for completion or the fulfillment of an intended purpose. See, Jesus, was, Jesus wasn't lacking or sinful in any way. Maybe another way of saying it is that Jesus, through suffering, became the complete sacrifice. Now, the author of Hebrews quotes two Old Testament verses to show two key ideas that find their prophetic fulfillment in Jesus. The first idea is the innocent sufferer who is ultimately vindicated. Now, verse 12 is a direct quote of Psalm 22:22. Now, remember, the book of Hebrews is thick with Old Testament, Old Testament themes and images. And this is an intentional retelling of Psalm 22, which prophetically connects several of these verses to Jesus' crucifixion. Now, verse 13 is a quote from Isaiah 8 that connects the idea of the rejected prophet who puts his hope and trust in God's deliverance. See, the author of Hebrews wants to make it very clear. He wants us to see the solidarity between the Son of God and the people of God. One of the sad realities of modern life is that despite having technology in our hands that literally connects us to the world, more and more people are struggling with feelings of loneliness and isolation. A recent study by the healthcare company Cigna surveyed 20,000 people and discovered that 54% of the respondents said that they always or sometimes feel like no one really knows them. In the United Kingdom, four in ten citizens reported feelings of chronic, profound loneliness, prompting the creation of a new cabinet-level position called the Minister for Loneliness. Now, increased loneliness is beginning to affect our physical health as well. A 2015 study showed that loneliness has been uh, shown to Uh, shorten a person's life by 15 years. It's equivalent in uh, effect to being obese or uh, smoking 15 cigarettes per day. Unfortunately, it's very common for this sense of loneliness to carry over how we experience life as a Christian and in the church. I have a feeling that even today there's some here who don't feel like there's anyone that you could confide in. Several years ago when we moved to Oldham County, it was a new area. We didn't really know anyone and 
uh, one of the pieces of advice we heard was to get your kids involved in sports. And so we, we plugged right in, and at that time, the, season, the, the sport that everybody was playing was basketball. Uh, and at the time, our middle son, Benjamin, was pretty much brand new to the game. And uh, during one of the games, there was a play, and I'm not sure if he took an elbow to the nose or took a hard pass, but he busted his nose and got a bloody lip, a bloody nose. And during, during halftime, he was sitting down uh, on the bench by himself, alone, feeling, feeling pretty, pretty lousy. And that's at that moment when our, our oldest, Joseph, came up to him, put his arm around him and said, hey, it's going to be all right. You can do this. See, at that moment, that's exactly the kind of encouragement Benjamin needed. See, if we're honest, at some point of our lives, we've all been the little brother rejected with a bloody nose in need of encouragement. That's why this uh, year, God's word to us, uh, organic, is so important. We all need shared life that's rooted in Jesus and that's connected to each other. So if you're here today and you're feeling alone or you're feeling like an outsider, I want to encourage you that Jesus is the faithful brother who's put you in a family of faith and he's bringing you to glory. Romans 8.38 says, For I am convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is our brother. And because of his perfect sacrifice, we're free to belong. Second thing that I want to talk today about is because of Jesus, we're free from death. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. We're four weeks away from our Easter celebration of Jesus' resurrection. And one of the most important things that we try to keep in front of us is the essential connection between Christmas and Easter. Christmas should always look forward to Calvary, and Easter should always look back to Bethlehem. And actually, one of my favorite Christmas hymns is Hark the Herald Angels Sing, written by John Wesley. I I love the melody, but I love the rich theology in the writing. Listen to verse 3. It says, Mild he lays his glory by... Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Here in one hymn verse is the essence of why Jesus came. Now verse 14 connects Jesus' identification with his people to his flesh and blood incarnation as one of his people. Now this passage is one of the most explicit statements in all of the Bible about God's ultimate victory over our arch enemy Satan. Satan is described throughout scripture as a thief, a murderer, the father of lies, a devouring lion, the serpent, the evil one, the lawless one, a dragon, the tempter, the accuser. Satan hates God, and he hates you, and he wants to destroy you. If there's anything that he can do to harm you or your relationship with God, you need to know that he's going to do it. Jesus is the ultimate people's champion. He emptied himself of his glory to become just like you and me. He was conceived in the womb and born in flesh and blood just like us. Verse 14 says that Jesus took on our humanity and he lived the perfect sinless life that was forfeited by Adam and Eve. And in so doing, he destroyed the death that we experience and the one that holds the power of death. 
And at the cross, when, for a couple of days, it looked like Satan had won. What looked like a loss was actually the most amazing victory in the entire universe. The Apostle Paul echoes this in Colossians 2 when he says, When you were dead in your sins and in, your, in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It's amazing. Not only are we free from the power of death, but we're also free from the fear of death. One of the most debilitating fears that humans face is the fear of death. And in Scripture, Bildad, one of Job's friends, describes death as the king of terrors. David once said that the terrors of death had fallen upon him. He further described his emotions as those of fearfulness, trembling, and horror. I grew up in the pre-internet age when the uh, newfangled technology that was all the rage back then was cable television. If you remember that. And during that time in the late 80s and 90s, one of the most prominent news personalities on cable TV was Larry King. Uh, his show, Larry King Live, ran for 25 years from 1985 to 2010. And it was CNN's uh, most watched and longest running program with over 1 million viewers nightly. And he interviewed leaders from every sphere of life, political, uh, economic, uh, entertainment, and sports. And over the years in interviews and articles, uh, Larry King has been very open about his fixation and his fear of death. Here's a quote from a 2015 New York Times article by Mark Leibovich called, Larry King is preparing for the final cancellation. This is what he says, quote, King takes four human growth hormone pills every day, and he claims he feels great. But in case of death, King has arranged to have his body frozen and then thawed out when researchers discover a cure for whatever has killed him, the so-called cryonics approach. King told me later that the people behind, the cry behind cryonics, they're all nuts, but at least if he knows he will be frozen, he will die with a shred of hope. I think if you were to ask Larry King, he'd have to admit that's a fool's hope. See, there's a big difference between Christian funerals and funerals of unbelievers. Hope versus doubt. Assurance versus fear. And we saw that on Friday during the Celebration of Life service for Bud Ackerman, where, yes, there was sadness. But there was also great joy and peace knowing that Bud was in the presence of Jesus face to face. It's been said that one of the main jobs of a pastor is to prepare their people for a good death. Bud had that. I came across a thought-provoking article uh, as I was preparing for this message by John Piper called Death Rehearsal. Now, in this article... Uh, he recounts his tradition at uh, New Year's Eve as the clock is ticking down uh, of how he reflects on his life over the past year and compares it to the clock winding down as he's about to die. And this is what he said, quote, For me, the end of a year is like the end of my life. And at 11.59 p.m. on December 31st is like the moment of my death. The 365 days of the year are like a miniature lifetime, and these final hours 
are like, the, are like the last days in the hospital after the doctor has told me that the end is very near. And in these last hours, the lifetime of this year passes before my eyes and I face the inevitable question, did I live it well? He says, it is a great advantage to have a trial run at my own dying. It is a great benefit to rehearse once a year in preparation for the last scene of your life. Are you ready? See, I've had to wrestle with that question myself. One of the hazards of taking the pulpit is that as you work on a text, the text does its work on you. I know the fear of death very well. Some of you may know that when I was 16, my father was diagnosed with advanced lung cancer. And after a brutal six-month battle, uh, he passed away at the age of 46. And I remember that day. It was September 8th, 1988. I was at school. Uh, we were preparing for a soccer game that night. And then one of the coaches came to see me and uh, let me know that my family was on the way to get me. And I knew what was about to happen. <clears throat> so I, I came home. Um, there and saw in the family room, uh, all my relatives were there. And I went over to the hospital bed where my father was, and he had the oxygen tubes in his nose, and his breathing began to get very, very shallow, and I held his hand as I was next to my mom and sister as he took his last breaths. As many of you know from personal experience, it's an incredible thing to be in the presence of someone when they die. God has blessed me with an incredible life. I have an amazing wife, three incredible boys. I've got the best job in the world. And listen, I have to admit that sometimes I wrestle with the possibility of my own early death and of losing this blessed life that God give, has given me by his grace. See, that early experience of death and extreme loss has shaped my life, and it's also shaped my approach to ministry. It's given me a healthy appreciation for life and an understanding that, as James 4 says, our life is a mist. Listen, you guys, we're not here very long. See, I was 43 a few years ago when I started to first engage this text. And I saw the number 46 out there looming as this huge adversary that would mock me from a distance. See, it was during that time that God took me deep into the truth and the reality of the gospel. <clears throat> and that's where I realized, down deep, that because of Jesus' death and his resurrection, that he's destroyed the devil, and the devil no longer has the power, and he no longer has the fear of death over any of us. Amen. See, I take nothing for granted now. But listen, I also don't live in fear. The best way that I can describe it is a, a grateful confidence. <clears throat> and that's only possible if we get the gospel deep down on the inside. Have you let the gospel get deep down inside of you? Have you let Jesus into the dark and fearful places of your heart? As I was preparing this message, one of the recent songs from last year's that's come to my mind that's very powerful and totally applies to this message is called No Longer a Slave. We sing that song here very often and it's very, very powerful. I want to just give you a couple of verses from that song. It really impacted me and really applies to this message. It says, I'm surrounded by the arms of the Father. 
I'm surrounded by songs of deliverance. We've been liberated from our bondage. We're the sons and the daughters. Let us sing our freedom. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. Love that song. And so as I was preparing for this message, I said, what, what's the backstory to this song? I want to know. And so there's a little video clip uh, up on the web uh, from Jonathan David and Melissa Helser. They, they wrote and sang the song. And in this little video clip, it talks about how uh, he had written a song, but he, there was a specific part that he wanted to bring his wife into. And she tells her story about this song and how she came to be a part of it. And she said that she had trouble engaging with the song until one day when she was spending the time with the Lord, she heard God say, I'm not going to let you sing a song you don't believe. And then she realized that this song was her story too. And that's when the breakthrough came. Is it possible that we can come in here every Sunday, raise our hands, give all the right Bible answers, and be paralyzed by fear and doubt the other six days of the week? Are you singing a song you don't believe? Listen, if that's you, if you have fears that you haven't conquered yet, I have no judgment for you. But I do have encouragement. And I have an invitation to let the truth of the scriptures into your heart and mind. John eight thirty six says, so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. First John 3, 8 says, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Revelation 1.18 says, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. See, we're not only free from the power of death, but from the fear of death. Jesus has set us free. We're free from fear over losing control. We're free from failure and leaving things undone. We're free from fear about separation from loved ones. See, Jesus frees us from all the distractions and all the escapism that would try to make us forget that one day we were going to face our own death. But by destroying the power of death, Jesus frees us from the slavery and the bondage that comes from the fear of death. Because of Jesus, we're free to belong. We're free from death. And last, number three, we're free to live. Hebrews 2, 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. See, if Jesus was made like us in every way, that that means he became an insider, right? That he didn't just act from arm's length at a distance, that he had to come and get dirty. It means that he became vulnerable. There's a powerful and inviting intimacy here. The cross and the switchblade tells the story of a small-town preacher who risked everything to reach the most violent, dangerous gangs of New York City. In 1958, David Wilkerson was reading a copy of Life magazine that profiled the details of an upcoming trial of seven teenage members from the Egyptian Dragons street gang. The seven boys had brutally attacked and murdered an innocent 15-year-old polio victim named Michael Farmer, leading to one of the most publicized gang trials in 1950s New York. 
Uh, Wilkerson went to New York to try to see them, but he was unable to see them in jail. And so at the trial, uh, Wilkerson rushed past security and through the police to try to gain an, an audience with a ju- judge to plead for their mercy. Now, the press uh, photographed this skinny preacher being physically detained by the police officers. And the next day, that picture would be on the front page of several New York daily papers. Wilkerson became a laughingstock to his family and to his home church. But what looked like an incredible failure actually set the stage for an amazing move of God that would literally impact the world. God told Wilkerson to go back to New York after a few days, after a few days and here's what happened. Quote, We were driving slowly when I had the most incredible feeling that, sh- that I should get out of the car. I hadn't walked a half a block before I heard a voice, Hey, Davy! I didn't turn around at first thinking it was a boy calling for a friend, but the call came again. Hey, David! Hey, preacher! This time I did turn around and I saw a group of seven boys. All but one were smoking and they all looked bored. One of the boys separated himself and followed me and said, Aren't you the preacher they kicked out of the Michael Farmer trial? Yes. How'd you know? (laughs) Your face was all over the place and your face is kind of easy to remember. You know my name, but I don't know yours. I'm Tommy. I'm president of the Rebels. Tommy's friends kept their bored expressions until Tommy revealed I'd had a run-in with the police. That was magic with these boys. It was my carte blanche with them. Tommy introduced me with great pride. Hey, fellas, here's the preacher who was kicked out of the farmer trial. One by one, the boys came up to inspect me. Tommy asked me about the trial, and I told him I was interested in helping teenagers, especially those in gangs. The boys listened attentively, and several of them mentioned I was one of them. What do you mean I'm one of you, I asked. Their logic was simple. Cops didn't like me. Cops didn't like them. We were in the same boat, and I was one of them. David Wilkerson left the comfort of his surroundings and got into the mess of their lives, becoming one of them to bring light into darkness, to bring life into the midst of death. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Verse 17 says that for this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. He's merciful because of his own sufferings and trials. He's able to empathize with us in our trials. He's faithful because he endured to the end without faltering. And this gives us confidence because Jesus is the ultimate high priest who didn't just bring a spotless lamb to the sacrifice. He became the spotless lamb, the perfect atoning sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. Verse 18 says that because Jesus suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help us when we're tempted. Finally free, subtitled, Fighting for Purity with the Power of Grace by Heath Lambert. It's an outstanding book for people who are are battling sexual sin. Lambert does an excellent job drawing out the nuances of God's grace. He talks about forgiving grace, which is God's unmerited divine favor. It's the gift that we don't deserve. But he also does a great job of explaining transforming grace, which is God's supernatural ability to do what he's called you to do. There's power to help And it's available for us in two ways when we're tempted. First, when we're tempted to give in. When we're tempted to give in to desires or temptation, there's grace and help available. 
Matthew and Luke both detail Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. He understands the battle. 1 Corinthians 10 says, No temptation has seized you except that what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Listen, I'm not saying it's always going to be easy. But here's what I am saying. With Jesus' help and with His grace and power, you don't have to go it alone. The second way that He helps when we're tempted is when we're tempted to give up. When we're tempted to give up in the face of persecution or trials or suffering. See, Jesus is our example of perseverance in the face of unspeakable horror. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus was about to face the cross, He says in Luke 22, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. See, when we're tempted to give up, when we don't want to take another step on the journey that God has set for us, you need to know that there is power here to persevere. Hebrews 12 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning at shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus became like us to face everything in this life that we have to face. And he's more than able to help us in our time of need. And because of Jesus' grace, we're free to live with a humble boldness, secure in his grace. One last story before we close. In Italy, during Christmas of 1944, there was a massive German assault it was launched on the small village of Somokolonia, where only two small platoons of American infantrymen were stationed. The situation was so grim that the, their commanding officers ex- actually expected them to lay down their guns and run. But for 20 critical hours, the small group of 70 GIs, all of them from the U.S. Army's 92nd Infantry Division, the Buffalo Soldiers, held out against an offensive that might have changed the course of World War II. On December 26th, John Fox was awakened at 4 a.m. by the sound of mortar fire, and he rushed to his forward position as a scout on the hilltop. And as dawn broke over the mountains, Fox saw in the village that uh, it was was overrun. It was swarmed by uh, troops who'd snuck in earlier, disguised as plainclothes civilians. From his observation post, which was surrounded, Fox called in, artillery coordinates that became closer and closer to his own position. No one who saw what happened at the end survived, but several men from the 92nd headquarters overheard John Fox's last call. First, he asked for a smoke screen to cover the wounded GIs and the civilians who could still walk. Now, on the other end of the radio was Otis Zachary, one of John Fox's best friends, and he was a, a, a gunner so accurate that legend has it that he could quote, lay artillery on a cat. John Fox said on his last call to his friend, I want everything you've got put on my coordinates. Fox, that will be right on you. I can't do that, Zachary yelled into the radio. Fire it, Fox yelled back. Late that night, the village priest recalled seeing the body of John Fox next to his post with the corpses of more than 100 German soldiers around him. Three days later, the German offensive sputtered to a halt, and by January 1st, the village was firmly back in Allied hands. It took a long time, but on January 13th, 1997, John Fox 
and six other black Americans were presented with the Congressional Medal of Honor for their actions of World War II. See, we said it at the beginning. We say it now. Freedom isn't free. John Fox's sacrifice for the cause of freedom points us to the ultimate example of the sacrifice for freedom. On the cross, Jesus completed his, his, his mission when he took the punishment for our sin. And on the cross, it's, it's as if he said this, Father, I want everything you've got put on my coordinates. Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. <clears throat> See, Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived. On the cross, he died the death that we actually deserve to die. See, that's the gospel. <laughs> that's the good news. See, it's the great exchange. Jesus was forsaken so we could belong. Jesus was crushed so we could have life. <clears throat> and here in just a few moments, we're going to pray. And if you've never experienced that kind of radical love, that kind of unshakable hope, it can be yours today. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He gave his life as the perfect, complete sacrifice for your sins and for mine. Because of Jesus... We're free to belong. Because of Jesus, we're free from death. Because of Jesus, we're free to live. Perfect, perfect freedom comes from a perfect sacrifice.